0: You're listening to episode 60. This is Grace on
1: Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered. Gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, Grace Nation, and
0: welcome to the show. It's summertime here in the beautiful U.S. of A., particularly hot and muggy and rainy here in Florida. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose, and today... Everyone, I am talking today about uh, really just sort of my own journey here in, in uh, discovering my own higher purpose uh, in this life. I mean, today's show really is going to be dedicated to unpacking an experience that I had just last week at the Anglican Connection Conference. And, and, and really, let me just kind of just state up front the reason why I want to do this. First of all, you know, the catchphrase of this show is to craft your life for a higher purpose, meaning that. You know, we need to learn how to rise above superficial goals. You know, I want my dream job um, or aspirations or wanting to get rich or trying to be like, you know, somebody on, you know, uh, the the home shopping network or, um, you know, what is the name of that? I'm just sitting here trying to think about that. It's the, um, the home builders, you know, the renovators. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But uh, just trying to move beyond, oh, flip this house kind of ideas and discovering God's dreams for us, discovering the unique wiring that God has given us, the unique calling that he's put in our lives, the unique contributions to this world that he desires to foster in us. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things that I've experienced in my own life just this past week, was I just sort of had a taste of what that feels like when you discover that. And so I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about how the Anglican Connection Conference gave me just sort of a glimpse into God's own purpose for my own life. And I'm super excited about that. Second, the other reason why I just want to kind of share this with you, you know, is because, you know, in my own journey of walking with the Lord, I, I've taken some turns in life, you know, that were just always a bit confusing to me. I mean, really confusing. I mean, how does a guy who is raised in a big Baptist church, the largest church in the city, and, you know, goes off to college? is in business, and then suddenly he leaves essentially all of that, goes to seminary, and comes out in an Anglican uh, world being a priest and wearing robes and all this kind of stuff. How does that even happen? And, um, you know, I've, I've taken these turns in my life, and the truth is is I've wrestled with these turns and twists and all these things that have happened, and and sometimes that's led to a point of frustration and tension. And it's left me wondering, you know, did I just make a huge mistake in my life? And I want to say today that, you know, we all have regrets in our lives. We all have things that we have done that we could probably look back on and say, golly, this, that was just a mistake. And then you can actually lead, that can lead you into despondency, but I want to suggest something to you today that if you have a high view of God's sovereignty, that is, is that you have a high view of God's power, of God's direction, of God's leading in your life, then ultimately what you can say is that even in the mistakes that you think you've made, God can take those mistakes and turn them out for good. And that's kind of something that I've also experienced uh, this past week. I mean, th- as you probably are aware of, that last last week I was in Dallas, Texas, at a conference called the Anglican Connection 2017 National Conference. And in that name alone, that doesn't really tell you that much, but I will tell you that it, it, it was a small conference. I mean, we had, you know, it's not like it was a 1,000 people. It was 100 people or so. But in that 100 people, we had condensed into this room in, in a hotel, uh, in, a, in a conference room, in a hotel in Dallas, Texas. And it was just one of those pivotal moments in my life. I said, yes. This is what I was looking for. This is the moment where I believe God has prepared me for. And let me tell you something. When you can get to that point in your journey of this life, and you can look at your circumstances, and you can look around, and you can say, this is it? Let me just tell you something that's exciting. And those moments don't come every single day, you know? They really don't. And so I want to share with you today part of how my purpose in life, how my higher purpose in life brought me to this point last week where I could sit back and look and say, wow, this was worth it. This is what I've been looking for. This is part of my calling. This is who I am. How I got to that point, and I want to share a little bit about that journey, not all of it, but to share with you why these things matter so much to me. And then what I also want to do is link that back to the conversations that we've had uh, over the last six months about this process of discovering your higher purpose. Because if we are, as Christians, discovering and working and striving to craft our lives for a higher purpose, then what are the things that we're looking for? What are the, what are the signposts along the journey That says, hey, we're kind of going in the right direction. So I want to unpack that a little bit uh, today, and and we're going to continue to unpack that going forward. But this conference, I just want to highlight this conference and just make it sort of a practical application. Also on the show, I want to, in, in street theology as well as the tip of the week, I am going to turn my attention to a theologian, Martin Luther, who frankly, I just haven't spent a lot of time with. And as I have... Developed in my thinking, and as I have developed theologically, theologic—that sounded so brainy, didn't? Oh my gosh! As I have developed as a Christian in my beliefs and what I believe that the Bible really teaches, I am beginning to realize more and more the impact of Luther on my thinking. And so I'm going to share a lot of that with you today, particularly in the street theology as it relates to daily disciplines in our lives. And so I'm going to circle back and talk um, and kind of continue the conversation that Brian Russell and I had a couple weeks ago. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, also here, let me just kind of transition for just a moment. Uh, As many of you know, I have been serving as a chairman of the board and serving on the board of a ministry called Exchange Ministries. And Exchange Ministries here in Central Florida focuses on helping people with same-sex attraction, really begin to reorient their lives, all right, around their identity in Christ. That's what it is. It's to help people that are struggling with same-sex attraction but are striving to live out uh, gospel-centered lives, and they're trying, and they feel this tension in their lives. How do you deal with that? I mean, let me just tell you something that, uh, for for those of you who have an interest in this area or you struggle with same-sex attraction yourself, that tension between desire in what God says is so so challenging, especially in the area of sexuality. Anyway, so I have served in that capacity for the last 18 months, but um, I have decided to step down from that uh, mainly because um, something happened last week as well that uh, really shocked me. and let me let me just read to you the letter that I wrote to the board of Exchange. Uh, It is with deep sadness and mixed feelings that, effective immediately, I'm resigning as chairman of the board. Over the past year, I've come to admire each of you and the contributions you are making to the ministry. In many ways, my entire focus at Exchange has been navigating the leadership transition, and now that Exchange has a director, I believe my season has come to a conclusion. Personally, I have become overextended in my schedule, requiring me to rethink where I need to focus my attention. This past spring balancing pastoral obligations along with shifting family responsibilities has left me little time with has left me with little time to prioritize the things that matter most that has become acutely apparent to me after arriving home from a conference only to spend the weekend with my wife in the emergency room after praying about this decision I'm clear that stepping down is not only best for my family but also best uh, for the exchange as well thank you all for the opportunity to serve you. May God richly bless you, grace and peace. And that's what happened last week. Um, here I was at sort of this this apex moment of crafting my life for a higher purpose. And I get home on Friday and I noticed something about uh, Ivy. I was just looking at her and I said, man, so, something's quite off with her. And I, and I wasn't sure what it was at first, but it, it just, the side of her face was just seemed to be out of alignment with um it just was out of line with the other side, so the left wasn't aligning with the right, and I've never seen that before with Ivy. What ended up happening was that she was diagnosed with Bell's palsy. She, I told her, I brought to her attention the next day. I said, "Son," I said, "Honey, son," I said, "Does your eye feel okay?" I mean, I wasn't pain. I mean, it wasn't bad, but I just noticed that her her right, or excuse me, her left eye was not blinking in with her right eye, and her right eye was blinking rapidly all the time. And I looked at her and I said, "You know, you you're, this isn't right." And she went to an urgent care and then she immediately went to the ER and ended up spending a night at the hospital. And what she ended up being diagnosed with was Bell's palsy. And Bell's palsy is brought on usually uh, by a virus as well as exhaustion. And while I was gone to this conference, Ivy had to pick up some extra burdens while I was gone, which I'm very thankful for. But I almost wonder if it landed her in the hospital. And I realized something. I said, you know, I can't do everything that I want to do. I can't pastor a church, sit on as a chairman of a board, coach T-ball, and also run the Anglican Connection Conference, as well as being a good father and husband. I can't do it. And I realized, I said, you know, I'm sitting here talking every week to an audience, and I'm talking to my audience, and I'm talking about crafting your life for a higher purpose. And yet I may be missing something here. And what I'm missing is, is what matters most. And what ultimately matters most is our relationships. And I have a, not only a responsibility as a dad and a husband, but also as a pastor to love my family first. And so it just was sort of a wake up call for me that I said, you know, I just need to, to pull out of some things so that I can refocus my attention onto my family a little bit more because I don't want my wife ending up in the hospital again because she's in overdrive because I'm out of the house too much. And so it was a hard decision and it was a decision where I, I really wrestled with it, but it was just so crystallized over the weekend that this was the right action for me. And on that note, here's the other thing that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be announced. I'm announcing a six week summer break of Grace on Fire, and so what I'm going to be doing during the month of July and mid-August, uh, I'm going to be taking a break from recording new episodes. You know, so I can uh, focus on my family as well as a few projects uh, that I'd like to do, and most importantly, spending time with my kiddos. They're out of school. And in the month of July, uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. But don't worry, I'm going to be sharing with you some of my Encore presentations. These are just six of my favorite episodes that we've done over the year. And, uh, you know, I'm just super excited about about it. And then back in mid-August, I will be back with you with all new episodes of Grace on Fire. So a lot of things happening in my life. And uh, let's keep moving here. But thank you so much. This has been an awesome year. Let me just tell you, in August, um, this will be a full year of recording Grace on Fire. And it was actually in August when I launched Grace on Fire, rebranded the podcast from In the City to Grace on Fire. And when I did that, I had only recorded about 17 episodes of In the City. And now we're sitting at episode 60. So we have been rolling over 40, it's just incredible to me, 40 episodes, over 40 episodes, 42 episodes of just cranking out Grace on Fire. And and that that means the world to me. And I've heard great feedback from you. And uh, I I just feel like we've built a, a relationship over the past year. And don't worry, I will continue to be focusing on building a relationship as we strive together, you know, as we walk together in this life to craft lives for a higher purpose.
1: Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street.
0: Well, two weeks ago, I had Brian Russell, Dr. Brian Russell, on from Asbury Seminary, your professor for life. And, you know, um, what he was talking about was this new idea that he and I have been developing called the New Methodism. Now, the New Methodism is not focusing on a denomination particularly, um, but it's talking about this idea of developing daily disciplines in our lives in order to shape our lives to really to live God's dreams for us, and that what we're recognizing is, is that, you know the Christian faith. You know it, we 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 were we were talking about that Chesterton quote, which was a, such an awesome quote, and it was really that so many people leave Christianity on the table and they don't really try it, they don't really develop it. And you know, to the opposite extreme, I think the danger is is that we make Christianity all about theology. And that is, is that we want to know really, really strange, abstract things about God. You know, one of the things that really annoys me as a pastor is when people come up to me, and, and and they don't do it in Anglican context so much. But I've been in other contexts where people say, you know, I just, I just, I'm leaving this church, uh, because I just want to go deeper into God's word. And what they're really saying is, we don't like your sermons, and um, you're not teaching us, and you're not wowing us with, um, you know interesting stories from the Bible and with theological concepts. And honestly, I'm not interested in giving you interesting stories from the Bible. I'm interested in life change. I'm interested in transformation. And very often what I find is is that we get so focused on reading deep theology that we forget about the fact that this is supposed to be applied. Theology is the application of Scripture to life. And you know what's amazing is, is I dis- I have discovered that sometimes what happens is is that we forget that many of the things that we're talking about have been things that have been talked about for for you know for uh, hundreds of years. And a great example of this is from Martin Luther. Now if you don't know who Martin Luther is, Martin Luther was really the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. He's the one who, you know, penned the 95 Thesis, you know, on the Wittenberg door, and um, you know he he was the the catalyst that spurred the Protestant Reformation in Europe, and then that carried over until England and into the English speaking world. And so, uh, I thought it was interesting because at the conference that I attended, uh, Luther kept being brought up, and so I was challenged to just go back and to discover some of the things that he wrote. And there was an incredible book that he wrote called The Freedom of a Christian. And in my tip of the week, I'm going to tell you how to get that book. But um, in this book that he wrote, he, he writes about the inward body and the outward body, the inner soul and the outer body. And his... His understanding of the nature of humanity was so good. And I thought that I would share something that he wrote as it relates to discipline. Listen to what he writes. This is called the outer person, discipline of the body and service to the neighbor. He writes, now let us turn to the second part, which concerns the outer person. Here we shall respond to all those who are offended by the word faith. They dismiss what has been said so far and ask, if faith does all things and alone is sufficient for righteousness, why are good works commanded? Now, let me stop right there. That's always been the real challenge with Protestantism. You know, right here on Grace on Fire, one of the things that I've tried to uh, communicate to you is to say, look, when you understand God's grace, when you begin to apply it, that you can live your life with an extraordinary purpose. In fact, that's what the intro of this show is all about, that grace absolutely is liberating and freeing, okay? The question is, though, well, then why does the Bible say that you should do all these things? And that's what Luther's trying to answer right here. And so he says, let us take our ease and do no works and be content with faith. I would answer such a wicked person with an emphatic no. This would be true if we were only inner or spiritual persons. But this will not happen until the last day in the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean by this? He says, for as long as we live in the flesh, we only begin to make progress towards that which will be perfected in a future life. This is the reason the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 23, that we attain in this life only the first fruits of the Spirit. Thus, at this point in the the essay, it is important to stress what was said at the beginning. A Christian is servant of all and made subject to all, insofar as a Christian is free, and no works are necessary. Let me, read, let me just read that to you again. It's important to recognize. A Christian is servant of all, and made subject to all, insofar as a Christian is free, no works are necessary. Insofar as a Christian is a servant, all kinds of works are done. We shall now show how this is possible. And then he goes right into controlling the body. Now, we need to stop for a moment and back up here. Because what Luther understood was that our, our bodies, you know, we have this soul, this, this eternal soul that God has given us. And this eternal soul is marked by sin and death and, and is broken. We have broken souls. We have broken wills, as Luther understood and then when we understand God's grace and God elects us and he transforms us and he changes us and we become a child of God, what ends up happening is, is that we've been regenerated. But we still have this body that we have to contend with, don't we? We still have this, this compulsions. We still have things that we, we do wrong. We still have something that we're wrestling with. And remember something, we shouldn't make a hard distinction between the inner soul and the outer ball, uh, the outer body. That is, is that when we do that, we're actually bifurcating ourselves, and that's not the right thing to do. We need to realize that as far as our soul and our body is concerned, they're so intertwined together as that they cannot be distinguished apart from each other. But it's important to recognize that what Luther's doing is he's trying to separate some things out in order to make some arguments clearly understood, okay? So what we're going to be focusing on here is our outward body. So he writes... As I have said, the inner person in the spirit is abundantly and sufficiently justified by faith, that is, through grace. It can be said that this person lacks nothing. It is true that this faith and its accompanying riches ought to grow day by day to the end of this life. Nevertheless, a Christian remains in this mortal life on earth. In this realm, control must be exercised over the body. Also, Relationships with the rest of humanity must be cultivated. This is where works begin. In this earthly realm, a person cannot enjoy leisure. Here, a person must take care to exercise moderate discipline over the body and subject it to the spirit by means of fasting, vigils, and labor. The goal is to have the body obey and conform and not hinder The inner person and faith, unless it is held in check, we know it is the nature of the body to undermine faith and the inner person. I, I, let me just stop right there. I could just go on and read because I think that it's. He just goes on and develops some of the ideas that we've talked about, but he goes. Let me just kind of clarify a few things. Let me listen to some of the scriptures that he talks about. Okay. So he says that St. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he writes 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. And then in Galatians 5, 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, before we go on, he didn't hate the body, but what he recognized was that the body is at war with the spirit. There's a war that goes on in each inside of us. And and this actually goes back, and this is an interesting point. Sometimes in terms of human sexuality especially, which is one of the areas that I specialize in, the problem with the present conversation regarding human sexuality and self-perception of gender is that we're making sexual compulsions and sexual appetites the driving determinant of our identity rather than understanding that our identity should come from not our appetites but come from our creation. And in a world that denies God, in a world that denies truth, in a world that denies intention, and and, pers- and and purpose in our lives, then all those things become self-evident. If there is no God, then I can define myself by whatever appetite I desire, and that's already happening, is it not? And that's what I think Luther's doing here. So Luther is just unpacking for us the reasons why we need to have discipline, because we are still servants of all. We're radically freed and radically served. And that comes back to a tension that I've always talked about, that we're simultaneously saint and sinners. And, you know, the longer I go, the more that I think about that tension, the more I realize that we simply need to rest in that tension. And sometimes, What happens is, is I think, is that we get so focused on perfection, we get so focused on you know uh, living a life where we are constantly at war with ourselves that we don't understand the tension, and then we get so exhausted because we're constantly fighting, not realizing that God is at work in our hearts, not realizing that the tension is always going to be there, not realizing that the tension itself is what God is pointing to. But he goes back and there's a reminder of Romans 8.23 that we have the first fruits of the Spirit and that the first fruits of the spirits are God's promise to indwell us with his Holy Spirit and to make it possible that we can end up disciplining our bodies and doing the various things that we do. And so I want to encourage us just to think about that because what I think is so remarkable about Christianity remarkable about what um, the message of the gospel is, is that it's it is liberating, it's freeing, and that when we understand that we are free, then we can pursue lives of purpose and meaning. Listen um, to this quote. I love this quote. Men must not be too curious and in prying into the weakness of others. We should labor rather to see what they have that is for eternity. To incline our heart to love them than into that weakness which the Spirit of God will in time consume. The Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the like merciful disposition. You know, sometimes we don't realize that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in our smoky, offensive souls. I love that description. By the way, this quote comes from Richard Sibbs, courtesy of Lee Gatiss. And, um, you know, when you realize just what God does for us and that he exists right within our offensiveness, what you discover, what I've discovered, is that I don't have to look at my failures all the time and then become so despondent on myself that I give up. But rather, I can look at those failures and to look at them as mile markers of saying, hey, but I'm making progress. I did, yeah, I failed. I did something I shouldn't have done. But look at all the times that I didn't fail. Or, you know, yes, I was that way. But this is where I'm at today. And that's the mark of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. And so Luther, I think he's he's worth reading and is somebody that I would commend to you as we think about the the rich heritage that we have, particularly as Protestants. And uh, let me just leave you with that thought here. But remember that the grace of God is so powerful and so amazing and so overwhelming that it absolutely will transform your life.
1: And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week.
0: And my Life Hack Tip of the Week is for you to go out today and buy Martin Luther's book, The Freedom of a Christian, and I'm recommending the Luther Study Edition. The reason why I like this particular book is um, because what this book does is it just gives you some tools um, to think about. It's, by the way, The Freedom of a Christian— in this particular edition, is so short; it's only like fifty pages. You could you could sit down at Starbucks probably in an hour and a half and read the whole thing. But what it does do is it also gives you an introduction to Martin Luther's road to freedom. That's written by the author, or excuse me, the editor. And then there's also Luther's letter to Pope Leo the Tenth. Those are all good things. But I highly recommend uh, this Luther study edition on the freedom of a Christian. It's easy to read. It's a great translation. And um, certainly worth your time. You can go to Amazon uh, to pick that up. Uh, In order to get the link, you can go to jonathangsmith.com forward slash gof60. I'll have my affiliate link on there. Yes, I do get a commission uh, if you buy the book through my Amazon link, and that helps go towards the cause of keeping Grace on Fire on on the internet. Anyways, go check out the freedom of of the Christian. Excuse me, the freedom of a Christian. The Luther
1: Study Edition. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And that brings me to my feature
0: presentation of the week and what the meant what the Anglican Connection Conference meant to me. Sort of blew that intro, didn't I? Anyways, oh my gosh, I can't, I just you know, sometimes what happens in your life is that you just get to that point in your life where you can get to that crystallizing moment and saying, oh, hey, this is what this was all about. Oh, now I understand. And I don't get those things very often. But I got to tell you something, I'm more pumped about being an evangelical Anglican than I've ever been in my lifetime. And the reason is, is because I was not only uh, part of the development of this conference, um, but I had just a little bit, a little role in the terms of the architecture of the conference. But I did have a big role in sort of helping bring this thing about, and that was really exciting to me. But... What this Connection Conference did for me was it did two things. One is it absolutely reinforced my own convictions of where I stand as an evangelical Anglican churchman. I absolutely love being an evangelical Anglican churchman. The second thing that it did was it just sort of just it it made my journey to this point in my life. It just made my journey crystal clear as to why I am where I am today. And, you know, in Grace on Fire, I don't talk a lot about being an evangelical Anglican. That's because I have people that listen to the show from all over the place. But today, today I'm going to stand on my high horse just a little bit. And or actually a high horse is probably the wrong word. I'm going to stand on my little stump and just talk to you about why I think being an evangelical Anglican is just top notch. I mean, let me let me just give you. A little bit of history here. I was not raised an evangelical Anglican. I was raised a big Southern Baptist boy, and um, you know, and I was evangelical. I mean, that would be the right word to describe me. But I, you know, I was a, I was a Southern Baptist. I like to uh, describe myself as a Southern Fried Baptist, and um, based off Southern Fried Chicken, which, by the way, just happened to be the most fabulous thing in the whole world. Anyhow, um, but that was me. You know, I just I grew I grew up in what I call, you know, Southern white evangelicalism. And uh, if you're familiar with Southern white evangelicalism, let me just tell you something. that That is a very powerful, very powerful mindset. And um, But back in college, I discovered something called tulip and the Calvinism, and that rocked my world. I'd never heard of these things before. Anyways, almost 17 years later, actually it is well over 17 years, it's almost 18 years now of being a committed Calvinist, and, and I've just kind of gone through so much journey in my life to be where I'm at today. But there was this sort of caveat. I, I mean, and, and let me just tell you something. I I was mostly started off in Presbyterian circles where you know I was taught that the Westminster Confession of Faith was the standard. And I'm kind of getting off on a on a tangent here, but there was aspects of the Westminster Confession where I just was. Um, you know, I was like, nah, I'm not sure that I agree with everything that's being said here. But of course, if you're going to be a Calvinist and you make a comment like that, well, you might as well just, you know, hang up your Calvinist career. But that just, that it never fit. There was something deep down inside of me that didn't fit, although I couldn't articulate what it is then, or, you know, in some ways, I'm still articulating what that is today. And then I discovered Anglicanism, and I, I was... How I got to be an Anglican was I was describing my beliefs to a colleague in seminary, and that colleague of mine said, you know, Jonathan, you sound like an Anglican. And that surprised me, because I didn't know what an Anglican was. I was like, is that an Angelican? Which is what most people uh, in this country pronounce Anglican. When they see Anglican, they they automatically, you're an Angelican. I'm like, you know, sort of. Maybe I'll be an Angelican one day, but not yet. It ain't happening yet. And so I began to look around and looking for an Anglican church, and then I came across a movement called the Anglican Mission in Americas that was trying to plant uh, Anglican churches. It had broken off from the Episcopal Church. It sort of, uh, you know, positioned itself as an evangelical, uh, Catholic, uh, and charismatic movement. Which I looked at all those three things. So I said, "Hmm, that's interesting mix." But they were evangelicals, and um, I thought, well, okay. And they had these things called the 39 Articles, which you had to subscribe to, which is the equivalent to a Presbyterian's Westminster Confession of Faith. So that was the Anglican Confession of Faith. And, um, you know, I so I got into a MIA, and then eventually I shifted over to another group called uh, the Anglican Church of North America in one of its dioceses, ACNA. And now today I'm in another acronym called CANO, which stands for Convocation of North Americans, Convocation of Anglicans in North America. And as I've been through this journey of Anglican acronyms, and um, all the while, something just didn't fit. And this is what the problem was. I just couldn't help but feel like that the Anglicanism that was presented to me was nothing but Roman Catholic light. And I was being called father. And I noticed that something just in the churches themselves, that there was this emphasis on ritual. And I noticed that people didn't know their Bibles very well. And I also noticed that whenever you deviated from the liturgy at any, you know, to any degree, wow, all of a sudden, you know, the the hornets would come out and say, what are you doing with this? This isn't right. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, no idea of freedom whatsoever, no idea of Christian liberty whatsoever, none of that. It was just like strict rules. You had to do it this way, and if you didn't do it this way and you deviated at all one iota from that ritual that was being prescribed, look out because you are going to get beat up. And I was amazed. And let me just tell you, I have the stripes and the bruises on my back uh, that absolutely... Um, Attend to that. So where I've where I have come from over the last seven years of being in these circles is let me just tell you it's an epic epic journey. But along my journey, I ran into a man at the Gospel Coalition. Now I was a dean at Knox Seminary at the time when this happened, and I I, I gotta be honest with you, I had already been a newly minted priest, and and I and I it just. My ordination to the priesthood was was a very political one. It, it was not a holy one. It was not a spiritual one. My, di- my diaconate ordination really was a, a beautiful and wonderful ceremony. I loved it so much. But my priesthood in, in the Anglican Church, you get ordained twice, once to the diaconate, then once to uh, the office of presbyter or priesthood. We use those words interchangeably. Um, I like to use the word presbyter. But anyways... Um, it just wasn't a, a really spiritual moment. There it, it was a lot of conflict and controversy, and I just felt like it was done uh, in such a way that uh, it, it really wasn't meaningful to me. And, and that's kind of sad, but I'm just going to be honest with you that sometimes these things happen. And so um, I ran into a, a, a guy at the Gospel Coalition, and my first reaction was this. By this point, I had basically given up on the Anglican movements, and I said, you know, these Anglican churches are nothing but got Roman Catholic light. That's what they were. And the reason why was because they were using prayer books that had all of these Roman Catholic um, points of view. And now, if you're hearing me say anything negative towards Roman Catholicism, let me just tell you right up front, I am a committed Protestant evangelical. And we have our distinctions. And so I am, I'm not ashamed of those distinctions. I don't want to be Roman Catholic. If I wanted to be Roman Catholic, I'd go be Roman Catholic. I did not go to Roman Catholic background schools. And so there was an aspect here where I was being asked to do things and, and sort of being shoved into a mold that just didn't fit. It just didn't fit. Here I'd gone to Reformed seminaries, Evangelical seminaries, Wesleyan seminaries, and all of a sudden, I was shoved into this uh, mold of being what I call Roman Catholic. And I, all of a sudden, I was like, this isn't fitting me. And so I'm at the Gospel Coalition, and uh, I meet a man named John Mason. And he had a banner up called the Anglican Connection. And at that point, I had become so, I had become so jaded towards Anglicanism, even though I had just been ordained. I had become so jaded by that point that I, you know what I said? I was like, huh, Anglicans at the Gospel Coalition, which was essentially a Reformed Calvinist, you know, conference, huge, I mean, 8,000 people. And John Mason, who was a a man, a a gentleman in his, at that time, he was in his late 60s. He was um, rector of Christ Church in New York City. He said, well, why does that surprise you? And I sat down, well, I said, do you have a few moments? I'd love to talk to you about it. And he goes, Sure. And we sat down and we talked for three hours at the Gospel Coalition. And John and I began a relationship at that point. And what I discovered was that John introduced me to a rich, rich history of what I'm calling classic evangelicalism. And that he introduced me to things called Gospel Center liturgies, he introduced me to the rich English Reformation. And these were things that I had never heard. And I went to a Reformed Theological Seminary, and I had a great church history professor. But he was introducing me to the nuances of liturgy and to the nuances of Anglican thought, of classic Anglican thought, particularly in the Church of England. And and, and it was like a whole new world opened up to me. And yet there was only one problem. North America basically did not have a single expression at that time that resembled this particular stream. And so what do you do? What do you do when you get into a denomination, into a movement, and you represent something that is so diametrically opposed at some levels to its own heritage? What do you do? Well, let me just tell you what I did. As a good Reformed student, I started to read and I started to read quite a bit. And I got to tell you something it th- through the process of reading, of beginning to read uh, guys like Thomas Cramner and beginning to read Hugh Latimer, J.C. Ryle, W.H. Um, uh, Griffith, Gerald Bray and others. I began to read and expand my understanding of what the English Reformation meant. And let me just explain something to you. If you speak English the, then you owe much of your Christian heritage, particularly if it's a Protestant one—Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, uh, Wesleyan, etc. If you come from any of those, you owe some of some of that heritage to the English Reformation because it was the English Reformation. It was Archbishop Thomas cramner who really led the way in reforming the the nation of England? I mean, the reason why we are able to even read Bibles in English was the great work and the great efforts of the early English reformers of the 16th century. And this entire heritage was just was just sitting there, and I had no clue, none whatsoever. And I'd gone, like I said, I'd gone to two different reformed institutions, but that piece of it was missing, and so john really challenged me and so then he invited me in to begin to participate in anglican connection conferences and let me just tell you this was these took place at beast and divinity school and so i went and uh, paid the price you know paid the money went up there and i began to hang out with a few other rectors and, and priests i mean we're not talking about many maybe we're talking about 10 or 15 people and we would meet at beast and divinity school Every other year or yearly, some cases it was back-to-back, and we would get together and we would begin to talk about sowing the seeds of a new North American movement in, um, of the English Reformation of classic evangelicalism. Now, by the way, I got to tell you, a lot of my colleagues, they don't like the word evangelical. And for good reason. I mean, you know, we got bozos all over America that call themselves evangelicals. I mean, Donald Trump calls himself an evangelical, which I absolutely just fundamentally just reject. It makes me seethe. But I'm not, I'm unwilling to discard a term just because of the way it's presently abused. But I do tell people I'm an evangelical Anglican. And so when you add Anglican onto the word evangelical, you know, what that does is that it actually shifts the the, the the term a little bit, like, huh? And then you can actually explain what it is. But, you know, if you're an evangelical, you can trace so much of your history back to this fountain of Thomas Cramner. So, anyways, so we began to meet at Beeson Divinity School, and um, we meet year after year. There was a year that we didn't meet, and I'm just going to tell you those were hard days because we didn't have a lot of funding um, the school itself sort of shifted us around, made promises that didn't keep. And it was hard just to get commitments by people that wanted to invest in this thing. And there was times, I got to just tell you, there was times and seasons where I was like, this is not going anywhere. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, talking with other groups and talking with other people and saying, you know, maybe I should just go over here. Maybe I should go be an Acts 29 Anglican or, or somebody else because I'm not getting any traction of where I'm at. But you know, God just never released me. He never released me to pursue some of these other things. And so here I am, rector of an Anglican church. And by the way, some of the uh, rituals that I'm talking about and some of the abuses took place inside my own church. Now, those people are gone, and the people that I have today are just absolutely beautiful people, and we're in the process of building a, a, a church. I want to call it, say it a new church, but it's not a new church, but we're building a new vision. At Redeemer and uh, a new movement, and, and I'm so excited about Redeemer Anglican Church. But I want to get back to the conference. And so this past uh, year, John came to me and he's had a challenge. He says, "I want to do a conference, and I want to do a big conference. Big for us would be more than 15 people showing up, or 20 people showing up." And um, he says, "I want to do this conference, and this is what I want to do." And he says, I want to bring in top caliber speakers and I want to bring in top caliber music and I really want to make this thing happen. And so I was like, okay, we'll do this. My beautiful wife built uh, uh, an incredible website and then she built um, a landing page, put all of the infrastructure together so that people could learn about the site, could learn about the conference, register for the conference, et cetera. And then, you know, lo and behold, what happens? Uh, not a thing. And so by March, we only had like two different registrations, and I'm starting to get nervous. I know John's getting nervous, but John challenged me at the beginning or at the end of last year to pray for 150 people. And I said, okay, I'm going to have faith, and I want to pray that God is leading this movement. Well, to make a long story short, we had over 100 people show up last week, which was exciting. And we had top caliber people, which is even more exciting. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the conference, you can go to anglicanconnection.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. But your, your, the conference, um, uh, actually, I have to do the work, but the, the conference recordings will be available. So you can go in and listen to some of this stuff yourself. But, but what was going on with this conference, though, was something else. And that was is that for the first time, scholars were coming in. So it wasn't just me or John saying that we have this rich heritage. Now we had some of the brightest thinkers and scholars in the world coming in, who, by the way, were all Anglicans, and who were espousing the same things that I was discovering, and who were proclaiming the truths of which I had discovered. And for the first time in my life, I realized that everything that I had learned going to Reformed Theological Seminary, going to Knox Theological Seminary, going to Asbury Theological Seminary, to uh, to Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. There's four seminaries that I've gone through that all of the background that I had theologically working as a dean at Knox Seminary had prepared me to sit in this conference and to listen to these guys and to appreciate the caliber and the momentum and the statements that were being made, because in a public context and within this conference for the first time in North America, it seemed to me that, is, is that, that we have this rich gospel-centered Anglicanism that was being proclaimed. Now, I'm sure that there are people out there who say, well, this happened in other times and other places. Well, of course it did. I mean, this isn't anything new, but this is a new generation that we're talking about. And I had been to a number of conferences uh, over the years, and I've never heard any of these things being espoused before like what was being espoused today. And let me just give you a good example of why I'm saying this. In Dallas, Texas, there was another thing that was happening, and it was a part of the Reformed Episcopal Church. And at the Reformed Episcopal Church, I believe it was a bishop consecration where they were getting a new bishop and a new leader of that church. And if you go and look at pictures of that meeting and then you compare them to pictures of ours, you can't help but realize the massive distinction that was being uh, demonstrated. One was highly ritualistic. And if you were to look at it, you would think, well, it's just nothing but another Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox uh, ritual service. They had all of the hats. They had all the robes. They had all the stuff. They had all the the regalia, so to speak. And you could just tell that it was one of those highly formal events. And and you know what? Great. Good for you. But it's interesting that it's happening in the Reformed Episcopal Church, which was the 19th century equivalent of the Anglican Connection Conference. And so just 15 miles down the road, there was our little conference, and we had no regalia. We had no robes. What we had was the Bible, a beautiful gospel-centered liturgy, and we had a chalice. What's the distinction? It represents two entirely different visions of what Anglicanism means. And within the evangelical context, what I believed happened, and I told John Mason was that this was really a spark that hopefully would grow into a flame that would begin to move and burn through North America in such a way that it would spawn a new Reformation. By the way, I get nervous talking about a new Reformation. I don't like talking about that, but we need one. We need one within not just Anglican circles, but we also need it in evangelical circles. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. But let me just suggest something that what it did for me what this conference did is that it solidified my commitment that there is a rich deep heritage of evangelicalism that goes far beyond the superficial and shallow things that we see demonstrated today it goes far beyond what we see, you know, classified in the Joel Osteen's of the world, and what we see presented on television, it goes far beyond all of the silliness that we sometimes are given in saying this is evangelicalism. No way, uh-uh. I reject that. When you begin to get into what classic evangelicals did and believed, and the impact they left on countries and on a nation positively, there is no doubt in my mind that it's a heritage that you can drink deep and longing from. It's incredible. By the way, the quote that I read earlier today about Richard Sibbs, about the Holy Ghost is content to, content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls, that quote came from an evangelical Anglican. And so there's a vision here of what being an evangelical Anglican means, and it's something that the Anglican Connection Conference began to imbibe and, and and began to present and it was so exciting to me. And I realized something out of that movement, I said, you know something? This makes all sense to me now. It makes all sense to me. You know it was it was it was really seventeen years ago? It was probably longer than that. It was probably twenty years ago. I began to flirt with liturgy. And I said to myself, you know, we, I need something more than the shallowness of just singing three praise songs or you know, singing a chorus 11 times and thinking that somehow by singing the same song over and over and over and over again, I was somehow getting deep, you know, more connected to God, that there was something deeper that I needed. And I began to explore liturgy, and I, that was actually what eventually brought me into the Anglican Church, was the liturgy itself. But I also come to respect and realize that liturgy itself is powerful to shape our souls. And therefore, if it contains poisonous doctrine inside of those liturgies, then it will have a detrimental impact on the local congregation. Let me say that again. If liturgy contains poisonous doctrine, then it will have a detrimental impact on the local congregation. And I have learned that when those liturgies are muddled with and they're monkeyed with, particularly with the agenda of moving somebody, you know, towards a particular position like a high ritualist, the impact of that is profound. And it has spiritual consequences. Let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about. And one of the liturgies that um I would read, I noticed that we were praying for the dead. Literally, we were praying for the dead. And I said, why are we praying for the dead? They're dead. They're either in heaven or hell. Why are we praying for them? I mean, Paul himself said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you know, it's a subtle but powerful concept. Why are you praying for the dead? And I heard someone the other day say, well, we should pray to the dead. I said, praying to the dead? Are you kidding me? Praying for patron saints? Are you kidding me? Listen, you think I'm lying, but this is a real conversation that I had. And so it reminds me of just how powerful liturgy is. So, you know, how it impacted me in terms of my higher purpose? Let me just leave you with this thought. In my quest over the past 20 years, you know, I've, I've been called to be a pastor, and I knew that I was called to be a pastor. It's just this innate sense that God put this desire in my heart to, to be a pastor. But I, I never really understood that. And so I always understood in this phrase, God's will for my life. But I actually waded into a deeper reality. And that deeper reality was understanding that throughout my background, through all my theological meandering— you know, going through all of these different seminaries, collecting different degrees, listening to different perspectives, that I finally got to this point in my life where I realized that this conference, I said, wow, this is what I've been working towards. Because it all came together in a few short days and of saying, wow, this is me. This is what I've been working towards. This is the thing that God's called me to be. And whatever that thing is for you, let me just suggest something to you. It's a powerful moment in your life. As I was walking around this conference, I was looking and listening to people. Not everybody got what I was getting. Not everybody was responding the way I was responding. I, I understand that. Not everybody understood the the, the the place and the the challenge of what was being presented by the speakers, uh, what the music represented um, by Keith and Kristen Getty, what what they did. Not everybody fully comprehended it, but I comprehended it at a much deeper level because I think that I've just spent so many of my years and time pursuing a moment where these things and these truths could come up to the service and be proclaimed. And let me just suggest something to you, that when you get to that point in your life of where the work that you've done comes to a point of an apex in your life, it is thrilling. It is absolutely thrilling. Now, you know, the irony of it all is, is that the apex passed, and I went home, and I had to, you know, minister to my wife who was in the hospital, and I realized that there's much more work to be done, but in that moment where I was sitting in that conference, I just, I remember just getting chills and goosebumps over, goosebumps over my body. We could call them Holy Spirit bumps, and I remember just sitting there thinking, wow, this, this, is, this is worth it. Everything that I've been through, all of the pain and the suffering, everything that I've I've gone through, everything that I, you know, endured, even losing my dream job, quote unquote, even enduring the hostilities of of parishioners who who were as ugly as they could possibly be, even all the things that I've gone through, all the sacrifice made to get to this point where people could discover the things of the richness that I've discovered, that meant the world to me. And I gotta tell you something, I am content this day of all the work that has happened you know i just want to challenge you i want to challenge you to think about your life from a different perspective and this is it don't underestimate the little things that god does in your life don't underestimate the currents that he brings you through don't underestimate those things because let me suggest something to you all the things in your life all the moments in your life they build on one another and through that process of building on one another, they shape and mold you into the person that you are. And so I think that we have to take those things very seriously and also to, to relax a little bit because where you are today is nothing but a stepping stone for tomorrow. And tomorrow is nothing, nothing but a stepping stone for the next day. And when you realize, like Martin Luther reminded us, that one day that we are going to enter in to the fullness of time, that we one day we will enter into heaven. That is our highest purpose, is to be in a full relationship with God at the end of time. And this journey that we're going through is merely just shaping our souls in order to become Christ-like. That is the message. And that this little moment, this little space of time that I experienced this past week reminded me that God's hand is working in my life, and he's working in yours. And that brings us to the end of the show. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative Production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit JonathanGSmith.com slash Grace on Fire.